The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Hey, good morning, everybody. I hope you had a decent Thanksgiving. Probably for the most part, it was low-key, maybe. Um, I know for us, it was a little bit low-key. Still great, still meaningful. Um, I was thinking, though, about uh, we have some of those chalkboards around our home with different things written on them uh, that my wife has written on them. And in our dining room, the one that she has written says gather. And um, I feel like we're doing something illegal by even posting that in our dining room. So uh, I got to make her change it here soon. But I hope you had a good uh, Thanksgiving. We are ending a series today called Level Up, and we're just talking about in this series, it's pretty self-explanatory, but just the idea of how we level up above certain things that we go through, certain things that we face, certain ways to look at life. And today as we end, I'm really, I'm probably most excited about today's message um, above the others, not because the others are lesser, but just because I think today's, my hope would be, uh, means a lot for all of us, something we can hide in our hearts because the topic I think is that important. If you're looking for a spot to land in scripture, you can go to Revelation chapter one, and um, we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, uh, Anybody out there want to admit that you're a Seahawks fan? Okay, so yeah. Yeah, a lot of us, we've been enjoying the Seahawks for the last bunch of years. I've been a Seahawks fan since Jim Lorne and Steve Largent and and Kurt Warner back in the 80s and um, the Kingdom and and days when we weren't so amazing. But um, this, this year, as I've been watching the games, I've been getting really animated. Okay, I don't know about you. I don't know how you watch games if you're just chilling, like, okay, it is what it is. But I'm like yelling at my TV. I'm calling some of the players clowns. Um, I have, we have an Ottoman that's leather, and so every now and then I'll just punch my fist on it and get frustrated. And I've been a little disappointed about how worked up I've been getting. And so a couple of weeks ago, we played the Rams. Um, we played really terribly. And I was, I was like beside myself emotionally. I was like, what is wrong with me? And so... After that game, because I was a bit disappointed about how I was feeling and probably because I also shaved off, you know, 20 years of my life because of it, um, I I was like, all right, I'm just not going to watch. I just can't watch these games. So the Thursday game, two Thursdays ago when we played the Cardinals, I didn't watch the game. I caught the score at the end of the game. It was awesome that we won 28-21. I was loving that, Um, but I did record the game, so I went back and watched it. So anybody ever, you ever done that? You ever like knew the score and then still watched the game? Yeah, I did that. Now, it wasn't nearly as exhilarating as, as it is watching it live and going, we're about to blow it because I knew we weren't gonna blow it. Uh, I already knew. And so I watched the game, didn't lose my cool at all and wasn't disappointed about how I reacted, um, ended the watching it and moved on with life and that's that. So, um, but again, the reason specifically that I did that because I was tired of being disappointed in my reaction to our team at times. That's just my confession. Now, um, once I knew the score, I didn't get nearly as animated because I knew that they won. I think um, probably more of us have done this than we want to admit. And maybe it's that you started reading a book, but you decided to read the end and then go back and read through the book. Or you know you were going to watch a suspenseful movie, so you watched the end and then went back and watched the whole movie so you would know kind of what's up. Um, Or it kind of plays out sometimes like this as well. If you've ever received a voicemail, I know we live in the world of text, so people are like, voicemail, what's that? But anyway, um, if you've ever received a voicemail from somebody and they're like, hey, you know, this is so-and-so, could you please call me back? And, And what you wish 
as that message ends is, could you give me more information? Like, is there a problem? Is there an emergency? Is it bad news? Is it good news? Or, or worse yet would be when your boss leaves you a message. And whether it's a brief email or it's a, it's a text message or it's a voicemail that says, hey, you know, I think we need to meet. Let, let's sit down and chat. And you're like, give me more information. Like, am I about to get fired? Am I about to get a raise? Like, give me more. I want more. I don't know what's about to happen. Anybody ever received a message like that? Like, just give me some more. I could really use more info. Yeah, most of us can understand you know, where I'm coming from when I say that. But um, I, I want to talk about in Level Up today something that you and I need to be reminded of um, because it's something important to hold in our hearts, in, in the good and the bad, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse and all that. There's something that's worth remembering and I mean this literally like every moment of every single day. And that's where I want to take us to Revelation chapter 1. John says this, and I'm going to start here in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, verse 10, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Listen to this. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell down as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now um, and what will take place later. Jesus, today, as we walk through this, as well as the end of Revelation, I pray for all of our hearts, all of our minds to be open and that God, maybe today we can walk out of here with that deposit that we're talking about, that, that, that need for us to hold on to something that I believe is incredibly important for anybody that would say that they're a follower of Christ, that this matters like crazy. Move through your spirit in all of us today, in Jesus' name, amen. This is John writing these words. Now, to give you context for John, obviously in Scripture there are more than, you know, there's more than one John. This is John the disciple, probably the youngest of all of the disciples when you read the Gospels. This is the one who sat, you know, at the Last Supper and, and, and leaned in on Jesus. And, and so he's also the writer of the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John as a fourth Gospel. He's also the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that were letters to the churches uh, that, that appear later in the New Testament. And then, of course, the last book that we have in the scripture is this one called Revelation, and he wrote Revelation. John, just like um, the other disciples aside from Judas who betrayed Jesus, Jesus um, uh, was, was 
persecuted for his faith. The other disciples were killed for their faith. John was boiled in oil and survived. And um, he ended up on the island of Patmos. Some theologians say that he was exiled there as a criminal to live out his days and to die. Um, Exiled others say that he went there intentionally to help plant communities of faith all throughout this small island. Um, We don't necessarily know the specifics, but we know that he was on the island. And it's at this point that he has this revelation that he wrote down. Now, I'm gonna skim through this, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. The most difficult book in the entirety of scripture to understand is Revelation. It always has been Revelation. Now, you can tie Revelation to some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, like Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. You'll find some of the descriptions in Revelation connect very much to what some of the prophets in the Old Testament had to say. Some of the descriptions, some of the end times type of stuff are written there, and they can parallel what you see in Revelation. For 2,000 years now, though, I'll just be honest with you, there have been theologians that have misunderstood certain things throughout the letter. And I, don't, I wouldn't say that there's probably anybody that's always got it all completely right as they've tried to understand it because so much of it is spiritual and symbolic. For instance, even John's description of Jesus in chapter one, you and I, I read what I read and you and I see this individual with you know, white hair and you know, bronze feet and this gold sash and all this stuff. And it says there's like a double-edged sword and we think of like a sword, like why is there a sword coming out of his mouth? It doesn't mean a sword, okay? We, we, again, it's hard to walk through the entirety of Revelation and understand it. As you move through chapter one into chapters two and three, there's letters to the seven churches. A lot of times it's the seven churches of Revelation. They're listed here. Every one of them geographically is on the continent of Asia in that day. And so in a lot of ways, as you read the letters to the seven churches, it's really covering the idea of faith um, in Asia back in that day. But the other part that's amazing when you read about the seven churches in Revelation, is if you do it introspectively and prayerfully, it can very much apply to churches today in context together as a body, or it can apply even individually to each of us and the condition of our own hearts. As it continues, chapter four, five, six, 10, 15, 18, it gets really, really crazy really fast. It talks about the seven bowls of God's wrath. It talks about the seven angels. It talks about these four horses and the horsemen that ride out in the apocalypse. It talks about a thousand year reign of the beast and all this stuff that's incredibly deep and hard to understand. It even gives us a window into the picture of the birth of Jesus and Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus and this escape to Egypt and the spiritual perspective of what's going on and then you get towards the end. I have just done an absolute disservice to the book of Revelation. I'm just telling you that right now, okay? Now, you get to chapter 21, though, and, and, and there's some more things that are said that I think are important to understand because you get to the point where there's this description of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer... And he see, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And again, we would understand that as the church. Um, okay, and it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order 
of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, okay, another picture of Jesus here, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse six, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. So you look at chapter one, it's a vision of Jesus in the beginning of this revelation. Chapter 21 is the second to last chapter in the entirety of scripture. And it gives us a picture of when everything becomes new, not only spiritually when Paul wrote in, in second Corinthians that, that we are made new spiritually, but talking about everything, entire heavens and earth being made new. And again, it's hard to wrap our heads around, but in the end, the whole picture, the whole idea is this. God will dwell with us in an entirely different way than you and I walk this earth today. Okay. Something will be completely different than it used to be. And it's this idea that as God walks with us, there's a new order of things and there's no more death and dying and pain and, and crying, all that stuff, because that's the old order. That's the world that you and I live in today that we're very familiar with the idea of pain and loss and grief and, and all the stuff that we go through. Now I'm getting to a point when I say all this, that I think is very, very important for you and I to understand that, that as we navigate this world, as we go through our days every day, as mundane as they feel, as challenging as they feel, as exciting as they can be at certain times, the key to this whole picture is this. This world is not meant to fulfill us. When John has this revelation, it's a message to the church, not only way back when, but to the church even as we exist today. This world is not meant to fulfill us. Let, let me get specific now because I, there's a key here. There's no doubt, and you know this and I know this, we have our joys. We have our reasons to celebrate. We have the moments where you had a wedding and your favorite people gathered together and they celebrated with you and it was festive and you think back or you look at pictures and go, that was a great day. You have some of us, the, the birth of children that you remember being at the hospital. You remember being in that moment specifically and, and oh, you can see the head and the crown and push and the baby and all of a sudden you were over the moon because the baby was born and you celebrated that moment. For me, when my daughter Emerson, who's now 18, the day she was born, I've said before, she's the reason I believe in love at first sight. I've been wrapped around her finger ever since because it amazes me what kind of love that we can have for our kids. Those are moments to celebrate. We do something exhilarating. We watch an incredible sunset. We, we bake and cut off a square and enjoy a double chocolate fudge brownie. And that's an amazing moment sometimes. <laughs> they're, they're, I'm not saying that, that we can't enjoy certain things about the world that we live in. In fact, scripture teaches us that things were meant to be enjoyed. The issue though, is if we think that those things are meant to fulfill us, we're missing it. It's why and maybe this should be familiar to you. It's why in the world we live in, so many people apart from Christ are chasing the, the next thing, are chasing the next adventure, are chasing the next relationship, are chasing the next thing that will fulfill them. But the key for you and I, if we're followers of Christ, is to understand that at the end of the day, this world is not meant to fulfill us. Okay, which then leads me to this point. When you're disappointed, when you feel unsatisfied, 
when there's a nagging ache in your heart for something more, when this world comes up short of your expectations, it's a hint. Okay, let me, let me say that again. When you have disappointments, when you're unfulfilled, when things go on that, that, that kind of mess you up and you feel this sense of there's got to be more, that's a hint. And what it's a hint too is this. There's a place where your soul is meant to connect. There's a place where, where for you and I, when this world doesn't fulfill, it's a hint that we're meant to connect to something else. This world is not the answer. You and I were created for eternity. So when we feel the disappointment, when, when things don't go the way we want, when, when, when we feel the anxiety rise up, it's a hint, and that's something I want you to remember. It's, it's meant to lead you towards that you're not meant for this world. This is not what's going to fulfill us. Even the greatest marriage on the planet, even the richest person that's ever existed, even the individual who's created you know, the, the, the most inventions or done the most things or has the record for you know, this or that, at the end of the day, that's not meant to be the epitome of life. Just last week, I, I, um, I, I did a graveside service for a lady who was 98 years old. And I've known her for a long time, and the family asked me to, to do the graveside, and I was honored to do it. And so we're there, and it was out at Mission Beach um, Cemetery, and, and it, was, it was honestly, a really, to me, a really moving moment to be able to be there. 98 years old, um, one of the stories they like to tell, and it came up again at this graveside service that she used to call me Ridiculous Nicholas. And, and obviously, like, I've had my, my years of plenty of antics, and I still like to have fun, but I remember back then, this is a story that came up, that we were out shopping for Christmas trees. I think this was back in, like, 1994, maybe 1995, and a bunch of us are out there. I, I was living with this family back in that day, and, and so we would all go out, and we were looking at our Christmas tree, and I don't know what got into me, but at one point or another, I just took a running sprint, and I jumped onto a Christmas tree, and I, like, sprung down and back up, and I fell down, and we all got a good laugh out of it, but she's called me Ridiculous Nicholas ever since then. Now, that doesn't give you permission to call me that. just want to make sure that's clear. But 98 years old, and as I'm preparing my notes for, for the service, because they want me to say a few things, what hit me like a ton of bricks was when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that when this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a home in heaven. Now, I love the imagery there because Paul is intentionally talking about the difference between a tent and a home. Now, we live in the Pacific Northwest where a lot of us like to camp. Many of us have camped in tents. It's pretty easy to understand the difference between a tent and a home. And that's the picture that Paul is trying to help us understand. Even a 98-year-old tent, which I actually said at the graveside, probably belongs in the Smithsonian, you know, for being that, that old. But, but for a tent, if you think about it on that level, and, and the difference between that and a home is profound. It goes back to, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down, John 14 through 16. John writes in those three chapters something very systematic, but he starts in, in John 14 by saying this, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, you believe in God? Good. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me, 
so that you may also be where I am. That's through verse three. So let me just try to help you with this. Paul says that for you and I, this body that we live in should be considered a tent. And and however your tent looks or however well your tent works or doesn't work, the point is it's meant to be temporary because Jesus is going to prepare a home And then he talks about in verse four, and you know the way. And then the disciples are like, well, we don't know the way. And Jesus says words that you've probably heard. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't get to that eternal home except through me. I'm the gate to that eternal home. Now, as you continue through chapter 14 and then into 15 and 16, he says this, I have got to go away, but don't be sorrow. He says, don't be troubled. He says, "Don't, don't be filled with sorrow. He continues to talk about He says, I've got to go away. But he says, you need to abide in me, remain connected to me. And then he says, then you're gonna bear fruit. If you don't, you're not gonna bear any fruit. In fact, if you're not bearing fruit, then maybe there's something wrong because a a, a fruit tree bears fruit and you guys are fruit trees for me, so go bear fruit. And then he says, I'm going to go away, but when I go, I'm going to send the counselor. See, he's being systematic. He says, I'm going to go. Don't be troubled by that. It's okay. Remain connected to me. Now, here's the key to remaining connected to me. I'm going to go away. And when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will live in you, he says, and and he will guide you. He will will bring you conviction about certain things. He'll, He'll take care of you. He'll be your counselor, give you wisdom. You need the Holy Spirit, okay? Later on, as you read the New Testament, Paul talks about the Spirit being given as a deposit for something that is to come. Now, I bring all of this up to remind all of us, guys, scripture teaches us that this is not our home, that we are here temporarily. But the good news is this, as you read Revelation and you get to the end of it, although much of it is very confusing and challenging to understand, in the end, what it literally means is, guys, God wins. And I don't say it flippantly, I don't say it lightly, God's got this. All that you face and all that you go through, God's got this. And I know you could say, Nick, you've kind of been saying the same thing for months in different ways. I know. But but what burdens me so much is that you and I can get so enveloped in trying to either be fulfilled by the world that we got to have the next thing and move on to the next thing and buy the next thing or whatever it is to try to find fulfillment or we end up living with such an anxiety and dread and fear and, and, and we're overwhelmed by all of the things that happen in our lives and the state of our world and what's happening and all, all of it that we get overwhelmed by that we don't live by the simple fact that God wins. And we need to not forget that. And what I hate about it is that it sounds so trite It sounds so flippant that it seems like you could easily set aside the fact that you and I feel real fears. You and I go through real things. I'm not trying to minimize the fact that you and I go through deep, dark valleys at times. We do. But in the end, the difference is we should be reminded that God wins. He's got this. Why? Can I go back on a Thursday night and watch a Seahawks game when I already know the score and not get so animated? Why? Because the Seahawks won. I already knew the score. Therefore, I don't have to lose my head and call them a bunch of clowns because they're not playing well. In the same way, when you and I face whatever it is that we face, let's be reminded through the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, let's be reminded that God wins. 
that he's got you, that he cares, that he knows, that he won't leave you, he's not walking away, that in the end, even though we face tough things, he's still on the throne. If you think for a moment about it, and I, I, if anybody ever heard of C.S. Lewis? He, he's honestly one of my favorite writers. And he has been for years. I read Mere Christianity years ago, and it's still to this day one of my favorite books. You have to read it intentionally, though, chapter by chapter, because it builds chapter one to two to three all the way through. But C.S. Lewis, um, he wasn't a believer, but as he, he, was, he was a thinker and he, he, he you know, educated and um, taught in the university, but he came to faith in Christ when, when one day the light kind of came on. And again, through the Holy Spirit, the light came on. He became a believer, and he had a lot to write. In 1948, he wrote something uh, called uh, Living in the Atomic Age, or on, on Living in the Atomic Age. In 1948, in history, most of us know World War II had ended, and, and um, things were pretty tumultuous because the end of World War II was actually you know, the dropping of two atomic bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay? Japan waved the white flag at that point because those were so devastating that they realized that like, this could annihilate us. And it's, it's, it's a sad moment in history when that many people died all at once because of those bombs. Well, as you know, the Cold War ramps up and you have this Russia-US issue and, and basically stockpiling nuclear arms. And there was, there was more or less things published over and over and over about, well, the U.S. has this many. Well, Russia has this many. Well, the U.S. has this many. And I was like, well, we have more. Well, now we, well, now we, and it kept escalating. And some of you that lived during this time or remember, you know, back 70s, 60s, even 50s, but of course the 80s and Reagan and stuff, um, it was kind of a big deal. And so um, C.S. Lewis in 1948, wanted to write about this. But what I love is that he actually writes something that to me matters even now today in the time that we live. So while it's in context living in the atomic age in 1948, think about this in the context of today because I love how he says it. He says this, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply. Why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids or railway accidents or motor accidents. In other words, listen, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were gonna die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we still have that. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with, with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. The first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we all are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, 
playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. Don't think for a second when you read that that I'm saying let's be flippant about COVID and who really cares. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is for you and I, let's not live with this sense of dread and fear when God's already told us, guys, I got this, I won. At the end of the day, I'm not gonna guarantee in this room that you won't go through hard things. That would be preposterous if I said that. Why would you ever come back and gather like this? Hey, look, if we serve God, life's always easy and good. What you should do is stand up and yell heresy. Life is challenging and overwhelming and daunting at times. But nevertheless, let's never, ever, ever forget that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. And when you cross the veil from this world into eternity, you don't have to fear because I got this. I paid the price and made a way so you could enjoy it. He says, I'm going to go. Keep bearing fruit. C.S. Lewis, keep living your lives. But remember that Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, that deposit that says, hey, there's always a reason for hope. See, the reason I feel so passionate about a message like this today is simply because I just don't want us to live at a level where we have to live here, worried and frustrated, trying to fulfill ourselves with stuff. And I couldn't help to think back to, yeah, the Seahawks game felt very different because I knew. But shouldn't our lives feel very different because we know? In the end, we know. It's been spelled out for us, not just in Revelation, not just in what Jesus says in John. You read throughout the, 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 the Gospels. You read throughout what Paul and Peter and these individuals had to write. Guys, our hope is in something greater than what we see and hear and taste and touch and smell. What if we hung our hat on eternity? What if we were reminded all the time this isn't all there is? There's a reason to hold out hope every single day. And come hell or high water, come good times or bad, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, Let's remember, God says I win. Let's never forget that. And Jesus, today, I pray that something like this would remind us to level up, to rise above what this world has to offer. Because in some ways, it is dreadful. In other ways, it can be exhilarating. In certain ways, there's things to celebrate that are high points, great. In other ways, it's disappointment after disappointment, yuck. But God, I pray that in the midst of all that we feel and all that we go through and what we experience, that we rise above trying to either be fulfilled by this world or living in dread of what we experience in this world. Because you remind us the old order of things is gonna pass away and there'll be things that are so new 
and that you will be with us in a totally different way than what we experience today, but that we will be your children and you will be our God dwelling among us. Father, let us never, ever, ever forget that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.